And now for introductions. Uh, we are here today for the Rosenfeld Annual Lectureship, which was established through an endowment from the children of Mr. and Mrs. Rosenfeld in honor of their 50th wedding anniversary. Their father, Vic, who lived for many years with diabetes, served on the St. Vincent Advisory Board and the Council of Trustees of the Medical Foundation. The purpose of this lectureship is to assure a tradition of hosting national expert in some aspect of the pathophysiology, prevention, or treatment of diabetes. And it is an absolute honor to introduce and welcome today's guest, Dr. Deborah Wexler, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Associate Clinical Chief of the Massachusetts General Hospital Diabetes Unit and Clinical Director of the MGH Diabetes Center. Dr. Wexler earned her medical degree from Yale University before and then went on to complete her internship, residency, chief residency, as well as fellowship in endocrinology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Wexler's research focuses on clinical effectiveness in type 2 diabetes. She is the MGH site principal investigator and is on the executive committee of the GRADE study. This is an NIH-funded multi-center trial to determine which second hypoglycemic drug added to metformin is most effective for patients with type 2 diabetes. And she is also the principal site investigator, the principal investigator of the Real Health Diabetes Trial, which translated the look-ahead lifestyle intervention for type 2 diabetes into usual care. Dr. Wexler has been in many leadership positions and served on the American Diabetes Association's Professional Practice Committee. And she was also co-author of the American and European Diabetes Association Consensus Statement on Management of Hyperglycemia in Type 2 Diabetes. I am absolutely delighted to invite Dr. Wexler. She is generous with her research and her time and her teaching. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction and thank you for the invitation to be here. And thank you to the Rosenfeld family for their, um, you know, for establishing this. I think diabetes is often not um, a subject of philanthropy and it, it is just wonderful that this, that this talk was established. So thank you. So what I'm going to focus on today is the paradigm shift in type 2 diabetes management. I've been an endocrinologist for almost 20 years and I've had the pleasure of sort of seeing as these things have evolved. But I think as in so many areas of medicine, it's very hard to kind of keep up with the shifts if you're not a part of them. And so I wanted to kind of focus on the three biggest shifts that, that I think have occurred with, uh, with a little bit of a deep dive into some of the updates. I do want to disclose that I serve on data monitoring committees for Novo Nordisk, um, and my spouse has equity in Apollo One Bio. So the talk, here are the learning objectives. We're gonna talk about treatment targets, uh, the newer medications and when they are best used and benefits and other conditions. But the real paradigm shifts I wanted to focus on are sort of more or less established. So the change in glycemic targets, I would say is relatively established. Weight management, I would say is an emerging paradigm shift and medication management is well established and will be the focus of most of the talk. So I'm gonna frame this talk with a series of cases. The first case, and they all sort of center around what is the next step medication to add after metformin in a variety of different scenarios. So the first case is that the case of a 73 year old woman with type two diabetes, a body mass index of 28, hypertension and a recent fall. Her A1C is 7.8% on metformin. What should be her next 
glucose-lowering medication. And here I won't dwell on it for much of this talk, but I want to make the very clear point that although we think about glycemic targets, or I was taught when I first started that the glycemic target should be an A1C of less than 7, in fact, the relationship between adverse events in diabetes that are related to hyperglycemia, which are mostly microvascular but not exclusively, are not linearly related to A1C but curvilinearly related, such that the vast majority of adverse events related to hyperglycemia occur with A1Cs greater than 8.5 or 9, particularly in the high end, and they occur when that degree of hyperglycemia persists over years, decades, uh, really. And so when thinking about glycemic targets, the marginal benefit um, in reduction of microvascular complications in reducing the A1C from 8 to 7.5 or 7.5 to 7 is, as you can see from these curves, the red curve representing um, evidence from the diabetes control and complication trial in type 1 diabetes, and the blue curve representing um, reduction in risk in type 2 diabetes in the UK PDS, as you can see, the marginal benefit of intensifying glycemic control is, is relatively small down at this low end of the spectrum. And of course, hypoglycemia can increase. And so it's important to think about what one is trying to achieve in establishing a glycemic target. Um, there was lots of evidence from trials in the first decade of the century suggesting that there was not a lot of benefit to intensive glycemic targets, particularly in people who had long-standing diabetes, short life expectancy, and established comorbidities. Um, and so for uh, on the flip side of the spectrum, younger people without established comorbidities and decades of life ahead do have a lot to gain um, from intensive glycemic control. And so for people who haven't seen this, maybe most people have seen this by now, but really a more stringent target of A1C of seven or less, if it can be achieved evilly, easily without hypoglycemia or polypharmacy, remains appropriate in young people, but much less stringent targets that are individualized to the patient's um, circumstances and comorbidities is appropriate. And then of course, now we are further targeting um, medications with specific benefit depending on the comorbidities. So just to leave people with some numbers, um, there's no set number here, but I would say the consensus is such that an older adults, healthier older adults should have an A1C of less than 7.5. As, as people have limited life expectancy, an A1C of up to 8 or 8.5 might be appropriate, aiming to avoid catabolism and complications of you know, acute hyperglycemia and diabetes. And so when do you really think about adjusting glycemic targets? Well, always I adjust, regardless of age, when the risk of hypoglycemia or the presence of hypoglycemia increases. This risk increases in people of older age, people with frailty, people with cognitive impairment who may not be able to respond or manage um, hypoglycemia. It's much more common to occur in people with insulin deficiency or long duration of diabetes, as well as in people um, with complicated insulin regimens and with a history of hypoglycemia or severe hypoglycemia. However, the two things you might think less about are patients with chronic kidney disease who uh, are at increased risk of hypoglycemia due to impaired gluconeogenesis from progressive kidney dysfunction. And then increasingly, we're recognizing that people with food insecurity who don't have stable access to food, but who continue on a daily dose of insulin or a daily dose of a sulfonylurea um, may in fact present with severe hypoglycemia when access to food becomes scarce. And so this is more common in older patients um, and more common in people of older patients who um, are non-white and non-Asian. So important to think about this as a risk factor and counsel patients on how to adjust medications if they're on medications that cause hypoglycemia. So in this first case, to bring it back, next step medication, I just wanted to use it to illustrate the point that for many people, 
depending on their age appropriate or comorbidity appropriate A1C target, they may not need a next step medication at all. For this patient, I would say the next step since her A1C is 7.8 is to discuss with her that her A1C target is 7.5, given her age, her recent history of a fall and some frailty, um, potentially have her see a dietitian for medical nutrition therapy and adjust her glycemic target to avoid the, uh, the use, uh, the need for more medications in such a patient. Let me turn now to a second case of a 66-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes and a body mass index of 32. A1C is 8.2% on metformin. She's in the Medicare donut hole due to her many other medication costs, and she just required from her, retired from her job as a clerical worker. And she says, this is it. I have time. I'm really ready to make major lifestyle changes. So what's the next best step for such a patient? So here I want to talk about what I would consider to be an emerging paradigm shift. And I think although I, as a diabetologist, have always really cared a lot about weight and weight management, and I'm sure all of you do as well. You know, I think for a long time the teaching was, look, it's more important to manage the glycemia, and if there's a little bit of weight gain, so be it. Um, I, I think, you know, there, Ildi Lingve and others are really proposing that, in fact, it is time to rethink this approach and really make obesity management the primary treatment target for management of type 2 diabetes. So this is, I would say, an emerging paradigm shift, but a very important one and one to watch. So the rationale that these authors present is very clear. Excess weight, especially visceral excess adiposity, is the key contributor to the vast majority of type 2 diabetes. Even with people with type 2 diabetes with body mass indexes in the low overweight range often have type 2 diabetes in the setting of a visceral um, distribution of their excess adipose tissue. It's also now been very clearly shown that there are substantial health and diabetes-related benefit of relatively modest weight loss 5 to 7%, as we saw in the Diabetes Prevention Program and in Look Ahead study, um, and indeed significant weight loss defined as 10 to 15% of total body weight loss can lead to diabetes remission. And we have evidence of this from the DIRECT trial, which was a trial of an intensive nutritional intervention. Um, there were many people in that trial, not very many of them lost 10 to 15% of their total body weight, but of those who did lose 10 to 15% of body weight, um, there was diabetes remission. And those were people with type 2 diabetes for less than six years. And I think everyone in this audience is very familiar with the effects of bariatric surgery in which substantial weight loss can lead to diabetes remission, most commonly in people without longstanding diabetes. And the authors make the point, look, although we've had all this therapeutic nihilism about weight loss, weight loss in this range may now be more achievable for more people than it was in the past, thanks to um, newer medications and uh, you know, newer treatment options. So just to make the point here that um, very old data from the nurse's health study, this is the risk of type 2 diabetes increasing with BMI, even within the normal range, the risk of type 2 diabetes um, will increase slightly. So I want to turn now to talk about lifestyle intervention as a viable um, option for substantial um, weight loss and diabetes remission. Um, I think people may or may not be familiar, so I'll just briefly cover the look-ahead trial, which was an 11-year randomized multi-center trial that followed 5,000 patients um, aged 50, uh, 45 to 74, all of whom had type 2 diabetes and overweight with a BMI of 25. And the goal of this study was to see whether an a long-term intensive lifestyle intervention program, which was group lifestyle intervention, individual lifestyle intervention, teaching people skills to change their um, eating habits, activity, behavioral skills for self-regulation and self-monitoring. It wasn't just a diet. It was really a, a long-term education and psychological intervention 
compared to sort of standard diabetes support and education, you know, periodic visits with diabetes self-management education, that sort of thing, was to see whether that intensive lifestyle intervention compared to diabetes support and education could reduce the risk of a composite cardiovascular outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and hospitalized angina. And um, in fact, although the lifestyle intervention was effective, achieving mean weight loss at eight years of 4.7% in the lifestyle arm and 2% in the diabetes support and education arm, with pretty substantial weight loss in a good chunk of people, 10% or more, in, unfortunately, there was no difference observed in the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death, uh, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or hospitalized angina. And there's been a lot of debates about why this should be so. The study might have been underpowered. The event rate um, in the control arm was half of what had been predicted. Moreover, people in the control arm had a higher rate of use of things like statins, more intensive blood pressure medication. So there, it may have diluted the ability to, to detect a difference. But I just want to point out that lifestyle intervention, in addition to leading to weight loss, actually had myriad benefits that you can't always impact with medication. So some of these things can, you can do with medications, blood pressure, lipid control. But with lifestyle intervention, there was less medication and therefore less medication cost. In fact, there was less hospitalization cost, greater physical fitness, less sleep apnea. All sorts of things that are much harder to impact with medications were improved by lifestyle intervention. Um, and indeed, there may actually have been some cardiovascular disease benefits. So in a subgroup analysis of the people who had lost that critical threshold of 10% or more weight loss at one year, those people, that was about um, a little over 20% of people had lost 10% in one year. In fact, in, the, in a subgroup analysis, hypothesis generating, of course, after the fact, those people did have a reduced risk of the composite cardiac outcome. Uh, and similarly, people who really had substantial gains in fitness measured by METS also had reduced risk of cardiac outcomes. So it may be that the threshold of 5 to 7% weight loss, which was targeted in Lookhead, is not quite enough. But once there's 10% weight loss, there is actually some benefit. There's uh, supportive observational data showing that people with new onset type 2 diabetes who lose even less weight than that may have CBD benefit at 10 years. So I think hopefully everyone in this audience is on board with the idea that there is some value to weight loss and lifestyle intervention. And what I want to briefly tell you about is a trial we did to try to make this more available in usual care. Because, of course, one of the challenges, there are programs like Noom online, there's Weight Watchers, all of these are very useful, but it's very hard to deliver this to people in primary care. And so we were hoping to generate some of the evidence base that would support um, funding of this sort of project in usual care. And so we adapted the Look Ahead Lifestyle Intervention for delivery in community health centers and primary care. And we included the same um, eligibility criteria of people who were in look ahead with the important, uh, and we were aiming to recruit people from primary care who were, who were more usual care participants, sort of less affluent, more diverse, conducted in community health centers. But importantly, all people in this trial knew they were enrolling in a randomized controlled trial and had to complete the behavioral task of five to seven days of a food diary to sort of ensure that the intervention would be the right fit for them. But I just want to point out that everyone who was in this trial was motivated enough to lose weight to want to join such a trial. And in fact, many people who um, need to lose weight aren't that motivated, aren't motivated enough to participate in such a program. In any case, we took the look ahead and DPP materials that are publicly available and we adapted them for delivery in a group format, delivered either in person via telephone conference call for scalability and controlled that to the active comparator of referral to medical nutrition therapy with a dietitian. And without getting into the details of the trial, I will tell you that we did see some drop off in efficacy, but indeed at five 
um, at six and 12 months, we did achieve good 5% and 10% weight loss in the red in-person and telephone conference call arms compared to the blue medical nutrition therapy arm with nearly half of people losing, hitting the 5% weight loss target um, at six and 12 months. And then similarly, um, almost 20% hitting the 10% weight loss target in both lifestyle intervention arms in the, um, in the, uh, at the 12 month time point. And people who had lost weight actually did maintain, we followed people out until two and three years and were able to maintain on average the weight loss over that period of time. So this was sort of a proof of concept that it is doable um, to integrate this into primary care and that motivated people can do this in the real world with less of an intensive program than was used in the randomized controlled trial. Sparing all the details, but this is published in the Journal of Journal Internal Medicine if people want to look at the details, including the cost details of this intervention. Um, I just want to make one more point about lifestyle intervention that I think supports the idea of weight as a new target, as sort of a newly achievable target, and that is that um, over the course of our trial, many people did have uptake of use of newer medications. And here's a trial showing that weight loss medication, GLP-1 receptor agonist, is more effective with lifestyle intervention. And actually lifestyle intervention is more effective with weight loss medication. So this was a trial, the red, um, yellow, and blue lines are from a randomized controlled trial of 150 adults with obesity who were randomly assigned to, in red, just a behavioral lifestyle intervention alone, yellow behavioral lifestyle intervention plus high dose GLP-1 receptor agonist for weight loss, liraglutide three milligrams um, for weight loss. Um, so the combination in yellow is the lifestyle intervention plus the medication. And then blue is lifestyle intervention, medication, plus actually meal replacements, which are very good for jumpstarting and inducing weight loss and were used in look ahead. And what I've added on here is the registration trial results of liraglutide three milligrams. And in that trial, there was not intensive lifestyle intervention. There was a little bit of behavioral counseling. So what you can see is that lifestyle alone, these patients left lost around 6% of body weight at um, 12 months. Um, liraglutide alone, on average, 8% body weight loss. But with the lifestyle intervention and the medication combined at 12 months, there was 11.5 um, to 11.8% um, kind of hitting that 10% threshold at um, 52 weeks. And so we really are in a position, I think, where we know what it takes from a lifestyle intervention and sort of behavioral standpoint. And we now have medications that I think can effectively support this. And it does make this, I think, far more achievable than in the past. And so the concept here in the paradigm shift is where previously it seemed like only bariatric surgery would be the main approach to get substantial sustained weight loss of 10% or more. And clearly surgery is really not for everyone, I think, you know, people, everyone who's referred patients for bariatric surgery knows that it really is only for patients who truly want it and are ready for the commitment that it takes. But I would say that effective lifestyle intervention approaches combined with newer medications make this a really important complement and co-equal priority um, with management of hyperglycemia uh, in type 2 diabetes. And so this, this, I think, really is the direction that we should be going and, and that I'm, I personally am going in my own practice. So for the rest of the talk, I wanna talk about the paradigm shift in medication management for hyperglycemia and type two diabetes. And I would say this is the very most evidence-based part of the talk. Um, and this I think may be familiar to some members of the audience and I there may be endocrinologists for whom this is old hat. So I look forward to all of your questions and comments. I tried to put a little bit of something in here for, for people who are less familiar of these medicines and people who are very familiar. 
So this is a third case of a 53-year-old woman with central obesity, body mass index of 28, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, treated with metformin. And let's just say, oh, I forgot to close off the last case. The last case, I should say, the idea of that last case is here's a person who's got time for lifestyle intervention, um, is sick of paying for medicines, and let's sort of aim for that for her. But now here's a case of someone who's really trying her best um, with metformin and diet exercise. And really A1C is 8.3. She has many decades of life ahead of her. She has no um, significant comorbidities. Um, what should her second glucose lowering medication be? And this is where there really has been a massive paradigm shift. So back in 2012, when we had some newly available medications on the market, at that time we had sulfonylureas and TZDs, which had been second line. We also had recently approved DPP-4 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists, and of course we had basal insulin. The American Diabetes Association proposed this sort of menu-like approach, start with lifestyle metformin and then pick one or the other. But it was really not clear which second medication would be most effective. And of course, at this point in time, there's a major class of medications, SGLT2 inhibitors, that had not yet even been approved. And it was into that world that we designed the GRADE study. So this is the Glycemia Reduction Approaches in Diabetes, a Clinical Effectiveness Study. The study was designed in 2013, and actually the results were preliminarily reported at the ADA in 2021. And unfortunately, the main paper has not yet been published yet, but it's due to be published soon. So I'm going to share with you a little bit about the study and give you a few teasers of what to kind of be looking for. So this was a study that really tried to answer the question we were facing in 2012, which is here we have people with type 2 diabetes treated with metformin, the A1C 6.8 to 8.5, so they don't need necessarily insulin, um, with relatively brief, briefer duration of diabetes, less than 10 years. And we randomly assigned 5,000 such patients to a sulfonylurea, and we used glomeparide. A DPP-4 inhibitor, we used citagliptin. A GLP-1 receptor agonist, we used liraglutide daily injection. And early addition of basal insulin, and we used glargine, which is also a daily injection. And so this was tested a number of hypotheses. It was The goal was to evaluate the comparative effectiveness of these four medications. But this was also a test of early addition of insulin, because I think most people in the audience will reflect that their, their go-to drug when someone is needing a medication after metformin has not typically been insulin due to its complexity, cost, et cetera. Um, but yet it's out there, it's very good. It's, it's um, you know, the most physiologic in some ways. So this, this was an important test um, of that theory as well. Now, I think everyone will readily appreciate what's missing. TZDs are missing and we excluded TZDs because at that point there was a lot of recent data um, on the cardiovascular risk of thiazolidine diones. And indeed they're relatively little used now. Um, but the big thing we were missing, of course, oops, was an SGLT2 inhibitor, which was not even approved at the time that we designed the study. And therefore, in this comparative effectiveness trial, really wasn't, uh, you know, we were using medications that had already been FDA approved and were approved in combination with metformin, and that was not yet true for SGLT2 inhibitors. Moreover, at that time, we didn't know if SGLT2 inhibitors would turn out to be a good thing or not. Um, and so we were essentially lapped by a lot of the evidence, and this is one of the challenges with long-term research. Um, there's still a lot to be learned from this trial, but it's unfortunate that that was not the case. Now, because GRADE has not yet been published, I can't actually show you the, the Kaplan-Meier curves from GRADE. But what I will tell you in terms of the top line results is that, disappointingly, the majority of participants in GRADE actually met the primary outcome of GRADE, which was really time to loss of glycemic control with an A1C of less than 7, 
um, the majority of people met that criterion within two and a half years. And this is very similar to what was seen in the UK PDS study and ADOPT. So despite the fact that we have these newer, potentially even disease-modifying um, medications, if you think about weight loss with GLP-1, um, in fact, there was progression in all, all four arms of the trial. There were, however, some differences in the comparative effectiveness of medications. And so the top line results that were reported at ADA showed that insulin glargine and the GLP-1 receptor liraglutide were the most effective for maintaining A1C less than seven over time. And perhaps not surprisingly, liraglutide and citagliptin were most effective for maintaining weight for weight loss or weight maintenance. It was actually somewhat surprising to see that glargine and glomeparide caused a similar degree of weight gain. I don't know that we would have predicted that ahead of time, but that is indeed what we observed. And actually, the weight gain was relatively modest. It was on the order of several kilograms on average in these patients with type 2 diabetes who were in an, a randomized controlled trial. Um, so that was interesting. Um, I think one of the more surprising findings was that the sulfonylurea glomeparide was associated with the most, the highest rate of hypoglycemia. Again, the overall rate was low, about 2.2%, but there was more hypoglycemia with glomeparide than with basal insulin. Um, so that was a surprise to me as someone who uses these medications all the time. And then the final surprising finding was that this study was not actually powered to look at total cardiovascular disease events. The patients in this trial did not have cardiovascular disease at baseline. Only about 6% had had a history of cardiovascular disease, and we did not think that this would be a cardiovascular outcomes trial. We anticipated a very low CVD event rate, and indeed we had a very low CVD event rate but the composite of total cardiovascular disease events, cardio, you know, heart attack, stroke, MI, heart failure, all of the cardiovascular disease events together were lower with liraglutide relative to other medications. It was a little bit of a hypothesis generating um, finding, but consistent with what has been seen in the cardiovascular outcome trials. And so therefore it feels like it probably is likely. And so although I don't have the full results for you here, I wanted to give you sort of a little bit of a teaser um, this is our latest paradigm for the management of hyperglycemia and type 2 diabetes, and GRADE really focuses sort of on this part of the diagram, which is if the A1C is above the individualized target um, and the patient doesn't have comorbidities, as we're going to discuss, that would lead you to choose one versus another medication. The guidelines have basically said up to this point, choose the medication based on its side effect profile and patient preference. That's still, I would say, valid. So patients who are very at very high risk of hypoglycemia should be on medications that don't have a risk of hypoglycemia, um, such as a DPP-4 inhibitor, a GLP-1 receptor agonist, SGLT-2 inhibitor, or as we discussed, have a higher A1C target. Patients for whom cost is their primary concern. You could argue for all of us, cost should be a primary concern, but for patients for whom it truly is prohibitive to be on another medication, then sulfonylureas and TZDs remain the primary options. Um, for people for whom weight is their major um, issue, then choosing a medication like a GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT-2 inhibitor with substantial weight loss effects um, would be preferable. But I suspect that this part of the diagram may change based on the results of GRADE um, as they are released. So that is something to stay tuned for. So for this patient, um, a 53-year-old woman with central obesity, type 2 diabetes and hypertension, treated with metformin and lifestyle, A1C 8.3, she does need a second glucose-lowering medication. You could still argue at this point that any medication would be beneficial um, based on her patient preferences. Uh, and so that's the way to choose. 
you might argue based on the results of grade that the GLP-1 receptor agonists could be preferred. Um, and then if you kind of want to go with this idea that the weight paradigm shift is, is more important, then you, your goal really should be to help this patient lose weight, to modify her disease course, and then lifestyle and medications to support weight loss would be the medication of choice. So let me turn now um, to talk about a variation on the same case. A 53-year-old woman who presented with central obesity, same person really, uh, BMI of 28, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, but now she has a history of a non-ST elevation MI with a stent treated with metformin alone. Her A1C is 8.3. Which medication should be added? And here, the data are now much clearer on what to do. And so this is where the biggest paradigm shift has occurred and guided by cardiovascular outcome trials, which have strongly changed guidelines. Practice is yet to catch up when you look at sort of data of how these medications are being used. But it's really important to consider the very common comorbidities of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or high ASCVD risk, heart failure or chronic kidney disease in deciding which second medication to add for patients. And I'm not gonna go through all of the trials, but we're gonna go through some of the evidence supporting this. So um, just to cut to the chase, people with high ASCVD, ASCVD or high risk can be on a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2. And the evidence is really very strong that SGLT2 inhibitors should be preferred in patients with heart failure, especially heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and for patients with CKD um, and elevated albumin to creatinine ratios. So I'm going to take you through a little bit of how we got to this point. And I won't go through all the trials because I think it gets a little overwhelming, but I'll just say that people may be aware that in 2008, the ADA changed its guidance on um, cardiovascular outcome trials for new type 2 diabetes medications to ensure safety in the wake of some of the findings of um, pioglitazone and rhodizigotazone. And what was quite surprising is that all of these new medications, many of these new medications that had just been attempting to show cardiovascular <coughs> safety, enrolled high-risk populations and actually showed cardiovascular benefit of one degree of another. And so there have now been a number of meta-analyses. This is a little bit of an older one. Um, showing very clearly in people with established ASCVD that both GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT-2 inhibitors um, are associated with reduced risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, so heart attack, um, stroke, CVD death, um, with a hazard ratio of 0.89 over the life of the trials, which is generally about two to three years. The risk <laughs> reduction has not been super convincing in patients with multiple risk factors or high ASCVD risk and has not been seen consistently across trials, although more recent trials have tended to demonstrate this, particularly the Rewind trial, which was a trial of dulaglutide. And so on average, we tend to kind of generalize to say ASCVD or very high ASCVD risk should probably fall into this category of um, being on one of these newer medications to reduce the risk of future ASCVD, uh, future MACE. And so let me just take a detour for people who are not yet using these medications to talk a little bit about how they're used in some sort of clinical pearls. So most of the time now, I think people are prescribing what are considered the longer acting subcutaneous injectable forms of GLP-1 receptor agonists. So liraglutide, um, probably less commonly xenotide LAR, but semaglutide and dilaglutide. Um, they are very potent at A1C lowering and weight reduction, particularly higher doses of semaglutide and sometimes dilaglutide. They um, 
Loraglutide, semaglutide, dilaglutide have all been shown to have cardiovascular disease benefit in um, cardiovascular outcome trials. The shorter acting ones are not used very frequently because they have a higher risk of GI side effects and they have no cardiovascular disease benefit. They're harder to take overall. And then the newer kit on the block is an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist oral semaglutide. Is this one, um, I tend not to use it as much because it's less potent for A1C lowering and weight loss. It has not yet uh, been demonstrated to have cardiovascular disease benefit um, convincingly, although CVOT cardiovascular outcome trials are ongoing. And it's a little harder to take in some ways. On the one hand, it's a pill, which you think would make it easier to take, but it was somewhat miraculous that they were able to co-formulate this peptide um, with, uh, I, I forget the name of the substance, but with a, a molecule that allows it to be orally absorbed. In order for that to happen, patients need to take the tablet um, on an empty stomach with no more than four ounces of fluid, 30 minutes separate from all other meds, and that can get to be cumbersome. So um, I usually will use the subcutaneous weekly ones preferentially. Important to understand that um, these medications do have side effects. GI side effects are most common, and they can be mitigated by starting at a low dose, titrating slowly over several weeks, counseling people to listen to their appetite to eat less, um, continuing to eat behaviorally in the same way with the same portion size will certainly precipitate uh, nausea and vomiting. And so, but on the other hand, amping up the satiety signal for people who are trying to lose weight can be very effective. There is an increased risk of cholecystitis. There is absolutely a history of pan uh, an increased risk of pancreatitis in people with a history of pancreatitis, almost all of whom were excluded from the randomized controlled trials. So there often is not observed an increased risk of pancreatitis in the trials because those patients who are most at risk were not included. But I can tell you from personal experience, in people who have history of pancreatitis, I've seen recurrent pancreatitis here. So something to avoid. Um, and their black box warnings um, regarding thyroid C cell tumors, which are not at all a practical concern, but will pop up. And therefore, you can warn patients that this is an issue that was a theoretical concern seen in rodents, but not in people. Um, and as I mentioned before, when I'm using a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which is an extremely expensive medication that does cause GI side effects, I really like to get the most bang for my buck out of it. And I really try and amp people up to combine this medication with serious attempts at dietary modification and exercise. And of course, one of the advantages is people who have had um, not succeeded with lifestyle change in the past will, will start to get success on this medication, puts a little wind in their sails and can lead to much more effective weight loss over time. So when should this medication, when should GLP-1 receptor agonists be the second medication? Clearly based on the evidence in people with ASCVD, I didn't get into all the nitty gritty here, but um, when you look, sort of take a deep dive into the trials, they seem to, they may have reduced stroke risk. They also may be beneficial in people with peripheral vascular disease who may be more at risk from SGLT2 inhibitors. So I will preferentially use these in people with a, a history of stroke or PVD. Um, I clearly use them in obesity when people desire substantial weight loss, particularly the newer, higher dose and more potent medications. Um, I, again, I'm not going to have time to go through all the data, but the other major indication for GLP-1 receptor agonists is when the A1C is greater than 9 as an alternative to basal or the addition of prandial insulin because they are very effective at glucose lowering. It's important in that scenario to rule out type 1 diabetes, but if, if there's no concern for type 1 diabetes, then a GLP-1 receptor agonist is, good, is a good uh, you know, first injectable or alternative to adding prandial insulin. And it's important when you're adding these to stop a DPP-4 inhibitor since they act along the same pathway. Um, and then 
you know, many people are really quite sensitive to these, so they should be titrated slowly. Tolerability should be assessed before advancing the dose. And some people actually get benefit out of relatively low doses. And so you may not be on the full dose, but particularly older people or leaner people um, may not need, in my experience, as high a dose to get a similar benefit. And if that's the case, then that's fine. They can be on one of the adjustable pens and pay less for the same medicine. There's no need to push the dose if people are responding. And in fact, it's counterproductive to push the dose because then people will have GI side effects and, and stop the medication. So let me turn now. Oh, so to wrap up this case of a 53-year-old woman who presented with central obesity, type 2 diabetes, and a history of, on, of NSTL, ST elevation MI. Um, her A1C is 8.3. She should probably have a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor added to reduce her future cardiovascular risk. So I want to talk about kind of the latest, most exciting story now by using this case as a springboard. And that is the case, again, very similar, 63-year-old man, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, A1C of 8.1, already on metformin and glipizide, but this guy has chronic kidney disease. His creatinine is 1.6, his EGFR is 53 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared, and he has an elevated urinary albumin to creatinine ratio of 402 milligrams per gram of creatinine. So now which medication is preferred? And here we have some very clear data based on solid RCTs to show us um, that really SGLT2 inhibitors are, are really important. And so I want to just take a moment and think about chronic kidney disease overall. It's categorized by GFR categories. Um, so GFR category of 3A is 45 to 59. 3B is 30 to 44. This is where a lot of the action is in, in um, diabetic kidney disease when we're thinking about adding SGLT2 inhibitors. And then Albuminuria has some somewhat newer terminology, so I always use the terms micro and macro albuminuria. Those are now called moderately increased or severely increased albuminuria, but the concept is the same. Moderately increased is 30 to 299 milligrams per gram, and severely increased is greater than 300 milligrams per gram of albuminuria. And people can, with type 2 diabetes, can just have albuminuria without decrease in GFR. They can also have decrease in GFR without elevation in albuminuria. So here is where SGLT2 inhibitors have changed um, the landscape, and I want to talk a little bit about these medications um, and how they how they work and how to think about them. So um, SGLT2 itself is um, a high capacity, low affinity um, <laughs> out, uh, uh, receptor in the proximal convoluted tubule that reabsorbs sodium and glucose together. And if you can think back to your medical school physiology, you remember that people in diabetes hyperfilter and they hyperfilter glucose. And we all knew that this was bad for the kidney. SGLT2 is actually paradoxically and unfortunately upregulated in type 2 diabetes, um, leading to reabsorption of glucose and sodium, which is a terrible thing. It's the opposite of what you want to have happen in type 2 diabetes. It leads to downstream um, hyperglycemia, hypertension, and very adverse renal uh, hemodynamics. And so blocking SGLT2 leads to an osmotic diuresis through glycosuria, a lower blood pressure, decreased uric acid. Um, glucose uh, lowering is actually self-limited. So you can only lower glucose based on what you filter. Um, so theoretically, when used alone, this medication should not cause hypoglycemia. It also leads, unfortunately, to self-limited weight loss. So unlike a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which does affect satiety centrally, the SGLT2 and, and through gut hormones probably, SGLT2s 
will lead to an initial period of weight loss as there's glycosuria, but once people hit steady state, the weight loss kind of stabilizes. So they don't lead to ongoing weight loss and they have no impact on appetite. Um, and so when we sort of first heard about these medications, you know, we all sat around in our diabetes unit thinking, how is this going to be a good thing? You know, glycosuria, that's bad. You know, it's going to lead to infections and this is going to lead to dehydration and all kinds of problems. And so we really were a little worried about these medications when they first came on the market. But interestingly, the very first cardiovascular outcome trial that was reported in the, um, which was the Empereg trial, noted, um, incidentally, that renal function over time on empagliflozin was actually preserved in people given empagliflozin. So this was a cardiovascular outcome trial. Creatinine was measured every year. And what was observed was that people on the empagliflozin had a drop, acute drop in GFR, right? when starting the medication, similar to what's seen with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, sort of a hemodynamic effect. And then GFR is stabilized over the three years of the trial in comparison to people on the placebo who just had a monotonic decline in GFR, which is what you would expect. And people said, huh, this is sort of an intriguing finding. I just want to say that there's some important take-home messages from this early observation, and that is that when you start an SGLT2 inhibitor, you can expect an acute drop in GFR of about three to four, milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Um, people with lower GFRs will have less of a drop. And if you get a substantial drop, like a 30% drop, then you need to think about that and investigate. But that's actually very uncommon. So, so what's going on at the level of the kidney? And I'd, I'd say we're still a little bit in the hand-waving phase, but to a large degree, I think people believe that what's happening is that um, the pathology of diabetic kidney disease is in part related, as we discussed, to glomerular hyperfiltration which leads to increased pressure in the delicate glomerulus in the kidney with increased reabsorption of glucose and sodium. By blocking that reabsorption, SGLT2 inhibitors reduce interglomerular pressure by leading more sodium and uh, glucose to be delivered distally. And the macula densa, since all this salt and water is being dumped down here, thinks that the body is dehydrated and therefore actually constricts the afferent arterial to try to um, you know, boost, thinking it's boosting, um, uh, protecting the kidney. And that um, lowers the pressure in the glomerulus by decreasing the inflow. This, I want to point out, is complementary to renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system blockade, which decreases efferent arterial tone, which also reduces glomerular pressure. So the theory would be that if you use them both together, you block the inflow and open up the outflow, you should actually be doing great things for um, the glomerulus, which previously was exposed to a lot of hypertension that was very damaging. So that was that, that was the theory. And in fact, that theory was tested, although the cardiovascular outcome trials all uniformly showed better kidney outcomes with SGLT2 inhibitors. There in the past year or two, there have been two primary kidney outcome trials published. And you know, just since they were both published, and it's not that often that we get two experiments that are very similar, I wanted to just share them with you. And so um, there were two trials, Credence and the DAPA CKD trial. In uh, Credence was a trial of, of canagliflozin that enrolled people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease. And I just want to point out, importantly, when using these medications for diabetic kidney disease, you're using the low dose. So it's 100 milligrams of canagliflozin, not 300 milligrams versus placebo. And patients in this trial were people with um, severely increased albuminuria, greater than 300 milligrams per gram, and um, stage 2 or 3 uh, kidney disease based on GFR. So kind of people in this part of the table. And the DAPA CKD study similarly used a low dose of dapagliflozin, 10 milligrams, 
looked at EGFR of 25 to 75 and had a slightly broader um, albuminuria criteria enrolling people with um, urinary albumin to creatinine ratio of 200 uh, up to 5,000. And interestingly, in this trial, only two thirds of the patient had type 2 diabetes. A third just had chronic kidney disease without type 2 diabetes. And here were these two very similar trials that actually had very, very similar results. Um, and what they showed was that the primary outcome of these trials was a composite of end-stage kidney disease, 50% decline in GFR or cardiovascular or renal death, similar size trials, um, about two and a half years of follow-up. And in both trials, the hazard ratio for the primary event was either 0.5 or 0.7, but very similar sort of order of magnitude of reduction of the primary outcome event in both trials from, you know, in the 40s per 1,000 patient years, reduced from in the placebo group, the 60 to 75 per 1,000 patient years. And um, this is, you know, a pretty big deal. Basically, for all these years, all we've had is ACE inhibitors and ARBs for diabetic kidney disease, which is the leading cause of renal failure in this country. And now here we have this, this new medication for this indication. It's, it's, it's really quite remarkable. So let me speak a bit about how to use SGLT2 inhibitors, some kind of clinical pearls. Um, there's a variable degree of A1C reduction in um, basically depending on the starting point. If people, if you give an SGLT2 inhibitor to a high A1C, they will have brisk osmotic diuresis until they hit a steady state and can have a substantial A1C reduction. You know, in my experience, those people can be quite symptomatic and I tend not to reach for them first in people with high A1C, very high A1C, um, who may also be insulin deficient. But, you know, you can expect, I would say, a 0.5 to 0.7 on average A1C reduction if you're using it for glucose lowering. Weight reduction, as I mentioned, is about two and a half kilograms and stabilizes with time. Hypoglycemia is theoretically only going to occur with insulin or, or sulfonylurea. And if people are continued on their same dose of insulin or same dose of sulfonylurea with less glucose around to metabolize because it's um, being flushed through the kidney, then indeed hypoglycemia will happen. Um, an important point is that SGLT2 inhibitors are much less effective for glucose lowering as the GFR declines because the whole mechanism of action is by filtering glucose. So if you're filtering less glucose because the GFR is low, there is less glucose lowering. Another important point and challenge here is that a lot of these medications are not labeled to be used at low GFR or were not labeled. Some of the labels may have changed. Um, but when you're kind of using an SGLT2 inhibitor for kidney benefit in someone with a GFR of 30 to 45, you're not going to get that much bang for your buck out of glucose lowering, you will get a lot of kidney benefit out of it, um, but you really need to have a low dose. And so dapagliflozin does have the label to be used at 10 milligrams. Uh, Canagliflozin can be used at 100 milligrams and EMPA could be used at um, 10 milligrams, but I would not aim to push the dose there to lower glucose further if you're using it in someone with a low GFR. The adverse effects um, are commonly mycotic genital infections, women much more common than in men. Um, particularly women with a history of mycotic genital infection um, are much higher risk, and that is strongly associated with discontinuation of the medication. There have been reports of Fournier's gangrene, um, but that may or may not be elevated above background in the population. Urinary tract infections may be increased, not, not in all studies. There have been concerns about calcuria. In the CANVAS trial of canagliflozin, there was an increased risk of fractures that has not been observed in observational trials or further RCTs. So it's not clear if that was related to that agent or just a chance finding. And then there's the rare complication of euglycemic DKA. This especially occurs in people with insulin dose reduction 
who really needed that insulin for their insulin deficient diabetes. It can also occur in the setting of intercurrent stress or starvation or fasting leading to ketosis. And despite, if that happens while people are taking the SGLT2 inhibitor, they have this forced osmotic diuresis and that will tip people into DKA. Um, and so to, these are actually quite safe medications, so I don't wanna scare people about them, but these things can happen. And so I think it's important to mention that when teaching patients about using them, I advise them to maintain hydration, particularly with high carb meals. People will note a, a prompt postprandial diuresis after a high carb meal on hot days, that sort of thing, people can get a little dehydrated. Um, we discussed the risk of mycotic genital infections. Genital hygiene may or may not help. My practice is generally to stop the medication rather than treating through it and then have a discussion with the patient. Um, the risk of euglycemic DKA is very real in people on insulin. And for people who are just having procedures or colonoscopies, it's been commonly, it's been reported that people with, who continue their SGLT2 inhibitor during a colonoscopy prep can develop DKA. So really advice should be to stop four days before procedures. Um, I do advise foot care because of a risk of amputation also seen in canvas. And so I'm somewhat cautious about using them in patients with peripheral vascular disease or ulcers. Although again, that hasn't been totally borne out. I do think about the osteoporosis and fall risk. If it's a frail patient, I may be less inclined. And I actually do not use these in people with type 1 diabetes and use them cautiously in people with type 2 diabetes on complicated insulin regimens. But that all said, the vast majority of people tolerate these well. Um, when starting them, I do think about how to adjust the other medications. So if the, if the patients are on medications that cause hypoglycemia and the A1C is close to goal, then the sulfonylurea or insulin should be decreased. Uh, if the A1C is substantially above goal, 8.5 or higher, it can just be added. Similarly, if patients are on high-dose diuretics or are on blood pressure medicines with low blood pressure, I would back off on the diuretic, back off a little bit on the blood pressure medicine. It's really just common sense. It's not unlike adding a diuretic to someone's medication regimen. Um, I just want to note that, um, and I, I see we're kind of running out of time, so I'm going to wrap up and say that uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists have also been associated with improved kidney outcomes and um, renal outcome studies are ongoing. So um, essentially, SGLT2 inhibitors, um, what I would do for this patient is for people with albuminuric CKD, if the GFR is greater than 30, I would strongly recommend trying to add a low-dose SGLT2 inhibitor. That needs to be stopped for an eGFR of less than 30, less than 25 for dapagliflozin. But I do, you know, patients with GFR in that range, I do make sure they can tolerate it and adjust their other medications. If they can't take an SGLT2, I would favor a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And I just want to remind people that metformin is usually stopped at a GFR of 30, and I try to minimize medications that cause hypoglycemia in this range. So I'm actually going to skip the heart failure case because I think the heart failure story with SGLT2 inhibitors is pretty well known. Um, and there have been now primary heart failure outcome trials. And just leave you with some time for discussion and the idea that we really have undergone in my own brief-ish career a paradigm shift in type 2 diabetes management in which um, glycemic targets really should be individualized based on age and comorbidities. I do really strongly consider weight management as a disease-modifying treatment target and consider that to be a co-equal priority with glycemic management. And I think it's really important to use medications that have cardiac and kidney benefit in people with type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high cardiovascular disease risk, heart failure, and um, particularly albuminuric diabetic kidney disease. So let me stop there and just take questions and have some discussion. Thank you. Great. Many thanks, Dr. Wexler, um, for a really comprehensive talk and also for leaving a bit of time for some questions, which we do indeed have 
think I'll work a little bit from the end and then back toward the beginning of the talk. Um, so first off, a comment, what a detailed paradigm shifting talk, thank you. Could you comment on ARB uh, first versus SGLT2 inhibitor first in a patient without hypertension, but with moderate or severe albuminuria? But okay. So as long as their A1C is already at goal, say seven, seven point five. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. Yeah. yeah, I sacrificed specificity for kind of wide coverage here, and so I appreciate that question. It gets a little bit into the weeds. So a couple things. First of all, the the kidney outcome trials, I did not mention, but all the patients in those trials were already on maximally tolerated ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker, and so they really tested the hypothesis of adding an SGLT2 inhibitor to an ACE or an ARB to show kidney benefits. So if the blood pressure, ACEs and ARBs are not always super effective at blood pressure lowering. So in that scenario, I would probably sneak on a low dose of an ACE or ARB and then add a low dose of an SGLT2. The ADA guidelines, the ACC guidelines, the cardiology guidelines have really moved way ahead of my talk to suggest that these medications need to be used in people regardless of A1C. And that's based on data from the heart failure trials that show benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors in people with without diabetes at all. The DAPA-CKD, which showed benefit of these medications in people without diabetes at all. I will tell you, for people without diabetes at all, these medicines are pretty easy to use because the side effects are reduced when you don't have hyperglycemia. There's very low risk of mycotic genital infection when people are not hyperglycemic. Um, there's little risk of os overly strong osmotic diuresis. So they're pretty easy to add low dose in people without diabetes, and it's certainly recommended to do that regardless of A1C for people with heart failure and diabetic kidney disease. Great, thank you, that adds some definite clarity. Um, could you please advise if there is any rationale for combining SGLT2 and GLP1s in addition to metformin in patients who are uh, resistant to starting insulin therapy, but not at A1C goal. Okay, thank you for that question. So first of all, um, we don't have any data to suggest that the combination of GLP-1 receptor agonist or SGLT2 inhibitor is better for cardiovascular disease outcomes. I can tell you for glycemic and weight outcomes, there is sub-additive benefit, which is to say you will get a little more A1C lowering, you'll get a little more weight loss, but not synergistically more. Many, many people are combining them the problem with combining them is you're at you're doubling the expense you know these are both very expensive drugs so now you're really kind of adding expense onto expense et cetera, et cetera. so what i personally do is if i have a strong indication for each medication like say i have a patient with obesity and albuminuric you know kidney disease i'll i'll def, I, that's a patient in whom i would combine if it's just kind of like type 2 diabetes on metformin and they don't really have a strong comorbidity indication and cost is like a major concern i'm sort of like weary of just lumping expensive drug onto expensive drug, because I think everybody already knows these are very expensive drugs. We're actually doing a trial funded by PCORI to test the, the comparative effectiveness of GLP-1 versus SGLT-2 versus their combination on CVD and, and renal outcomes. And so if that trial succeeds, we'll get an answer. Great, thank you for your work in adding to the evidence base. Um, here, another question. I'm hoping you can comment on continuing versus discontinuing medications, specifically metformin and GLP-1 agonist therapy um, in someone with a history of diabetes, but who has now normalized their A1C. Yeah, that's a good question. So 
this happens because they are effective. So people will lose weight and have kind of diabetes remission. So diabetes remission is defined as maintaining A1C um, with, you know, off medicine, basically. And the, of course, with all weight loss medications, when you stop the weight loss medication in the management of obesity as a chronic condition, the weight tends to creep back up. So that is a very individualized decision based on what's going on with the patient. If the patient really has made substantial lifestyle changes, lost a substantial amount of weight, wants to see if he or she can maintain off medications, then I do peel back. Unfortunately, a lot of times there'll be a little bit of a recurrence of weight gain and recurrence of diabetes. So I discuss with the patient what their circumstances are and just have a lot of shared decision-making on how to peel back. But it's certainly reasonable. I always think in these chronic conditions, it's helpful to have the patient truly be convinced that it's important to stay on it so they can have a trial of being off it. And then when they see, yeah, I actually re really did need this, they can always restart the medication. Great, thank you. Um, now I have a question uh, going a bit back to the discussion of the GRADE uh, study specifically. Um, they are curious about uh, issues of uh, dropout rate uh, yeah. for the, the raglatide arm, particularly as that may be less tolerated among the GLP-1s, also perhaps slightly less compelling with cardiovascular outcome results. Um, any thoughts about how this might have influenced results of the trial? Yes, so thank you for the question. I actually don't remember the dropout rates offhand, but um, the, the the retention overall in the trial was like in the high 90%. So we had very high rates of loss to follow up. A lot of the dropout the, or the stopping of the medication was protocolized. So for example, pe people had excessive weight gain or failed to maintain glycemic control, they would be crossed over to insulin as part of the trial. And actually the rate of dropout in liraglutide was lower then incitagliptin, which had an early failure rate, um, and actually glimepiride had a relatively high rate of dropout due to a protocol mandated requirement to stop any medicine that caused 10% or more body weight gain. And there were a number of people who actually had, who gained 10% of their body weight. Uh, certain people can be very sensitive to insulin and sulfonylurea associated weight gain. And for those people in grade, we stopped the medication. So my recollection is the liraglutide had the highest rate of continuation or among the higher rates of continuation in the trial, and that I, I think these results are valid. My hope is that paper will be published in the next four to six weeks, so keep an eye out. Great. Many thanks. And I see we have just a couple minutes left. I think we will move all the way back to a bit more discussion of um, weight loss uh, portion of the talk. Um, any comments on whether it seems that um, absolute BMI versus sort of percent of weight loss uh, seems more important with regard to outcomes? With regard to outcomes in diabetes, I think the 10% threshold is really a critical threshold. Most trials look at weight loss have looked at, you know, lifestyle change don't look at people with very severe obesity. So like for look ahead, I think the maximum weight was 350 pounds. So when you start to get into very severe obesity, BMIs of 50, I don't know that 10% is going to be a key determinant. But the crazy thing about weight loss is that the very first place you lose weight is from your liver. And I think people are familiar with fatty liver as being kind of the company that type 2 diabetes keeps with probably a bi-directional relationship with hepatic steatosis causing type 2 diabetes, diabetes worsening the tendency to hepatic steatosis. So when you lose weight from your liver, that's not where you ever wanted to lose weight, but it's actually metabolically extremely beneficial right off the bat. So, and, and that's why relatively modest degrees of weight loss of five to 7% can have enormous benefits in getting people off diabetes medications, even without, you know, maybe they were hoping to fit into their, you know, old dress, that's not gonna necessarily happen, but, um, but their metabolically will be much better off even with modest percent weight loss. 
Thank you. The physiology of that is helpful to think about. Um, and one late breaking question here, perhaps related. Any thoughts about risk benefit of the keto diet in patients with type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so it depends on um, like their insulin and overall diet and how they, whether it be keto or kind of time restricted eating or intermittent fasting, you know, a lot of those low carb, a lot of these diets are really just mechanisms of getting people to eat fewer calories. And my own belief based on my work with lifestyle intervention and people over many years is that you're not really, you, you really need to focus on the entire behavioral approach to eating, which is conditioned from birth. It often is a long-term effort that really just gets into all kinds of social and cultural factors. So I think most sustained weight loss is related with sustained behavioral change, not necessarily any particular fad diet. Um, however, a low carb diet or a keto diet can be done safely in people with type 2 diabetes who adjust their insulin. And certainly many people with type 1 diabetes follow low carb diets just to make their lives easier on relatively low doses of insulin. So it can be done safely, but the patient needs to understand how to adjust his or her insulin. In people who are not on insulin, I don't think it they can, you know, they can sort of diet any way that works for them. Thank you. I do want to acknowledge we're at nine o'clock. I'm going to keep you for one more question, Dr. Wexler, sure. um, with your expertise. Um, I do wonder, since you're such an expert in this area, any particular tips for thinking about um, counseling on weight management that supports patients but avoids exacerbating stigma in the healthcare given so many social implications of, of weight? Yes, so weight stigma is massive. And actually my colleague who I would encourage you to try to um, look up or invite is Fatima Cody-Stanford. This is her major issue is weight stigma and how that interacts with other uh, stigmas in our society. You know, I think it's important to be really accepting. It's important to set realistic goals. It's important to, um, I you know, the language you use is super important, you know, I, I ask people a lot about how they eat. I, I really set the norm of, oh, everyone does this. This is normal in America. This is the way it is. This is our environment. You know, I sort of try to put a lot of um, normalizing of, you know, that the, I try to remove all the self-blame. You know, there's all kinds of people um, who expose this environment. This is just what happens. So I really I really try and use those sorts of terms. I don't have a particular approach. It's really individualized to the patient, but it's, it is super important. So thank you for raising the point. Thank I guess you. the other thing is I, I try to target easy to change, easier to change sources. So I take a diet history um, without presuming a certain meal pattern. So for example, what's the first thing you eat? What's the next thing you eat? Not what is breakfast, lunch, and dinner, because people can be eating at all times of day on the go. And then I'll often try to identify a single thing that could be eliminated, like a sugar-sweetened beverage or alcohol, and, and try and have you know some kind of uh, motivational interviewing and shared decision-making to set a realistic goal, a SMART goal, you know, it's the same stuff. There's no magic here. SMART goal, and then the next time, check in on that goal, build on that success to, to, to get to the next goal. Great, many thanks. Perhaps we can hope to host your colleague in the future. Great. Um, Dr. Wexler, tremendous teaching, and um, you're such a leader in the field and contributing to our evidence base. Um, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really was grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much.